Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, this letter to the church at Ephesus, this church that was at the forefront of church planning in Asia Minor. The Apostle Paul writing, and now he's going to continue on. And remember that we're in that uh, applicational section. And of course, uh, all these things that we've already seen, and you, you can kind of think back on them. When you see the word therefore, it is always necessary for us to ask ourselves a simple question What is the therefore, therefore? Why is it there? Why does it say therefore? Because it always refers to something that's already been said, already been done, already passed along, and that is no exception here. And so the word therefore is referring back to what we've already seen, specifically uh, within this chapter in the confines of the first 16 verses. And, And remember that as Christians, we're to be imitators of God. Amen? We're to be imitators of God. Therefore. We're, we're to be as sinless as possible, therefore. We're, we're to walk in the light, therefore. We're to redeem the time, therefore. Do you see how it works? You have to look and see why the therefore is there. We're supposed to be imitators of Christ. We're supposed to be walking in the Spirit. We're supposed to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're not supposed to walk in sin, sin behavior. And so this now comes to the applicational, the directly applicational portion of the remainder of this chapter. And he's kind of finished up with this concept of us walking in the light. And because we are God's representatives in this world, as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we're supposed to be showing the world Jesus. And the best way that we can do that, and the first place that it's put to practice, is in our homes. Amen? If you happen to have the perfect home, I'm going to invite you to come and do a seminar here at the church. We'll pick a Saturday, and you can just tell us how to do a perfect home. Our, our, our marriages are the first place, our families are the first place that these principles get put to practice, amen? You, you see, when we know something to be true about God's Word, we're then obligated not to be just hearers of the Word, as James said, but we're supposed to be doers of the Word, amen? So these things that we've seen, being an imitator of God as dear children, to have that childlike applicational faith that changes and transforms the very way that we live, the things that we do, the things that we say, he's going to now go on and give us first, as he has done multiple times throughout his letters to the church, he's going to give us a negative example. He's going to say, look, this is what you shouldn't do. This is how you shouldn't act. Because those things stick with us. That's why we as parents always tell our children, don't, you know, don't run out on the street because you'll get squished. Amen? You don't explain to them traffic laws. Well, son, did you know that there's traffic laws that prevent people from driving carelessly down the street and going too fast? And No, you just tell them, if you run out in the street, you're going to get killed. You give them the negative example because it's easier for them to hang on to than the conceptual. And so here is a negative example that is not conceptual. It's very real. It was something that the church was struggling with then. And can I say to you, it's something that people in the church struggle with today. It's something that still affects the body of Christ. That's the subject of consuming alcohol. And is it something that we ought to be involved in? Therefore, do not be unwise. Don't be unwise. The world is a dangerous place, and we are not to be unwise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we author these moments uh, back to you, Lord, we just simply give them to you. We say, God, they're yours, and we desire as your children to hear your voice. Would you take now your word and help us to receive from it? 
Lord, cause us to be stretched and grown, Lord. Help us to lay hold of truth that we might not sin against you. And so, Lord, we give you this wonderful few minutes, Lord, for you now to just speak to our lives. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17 here in Ephesians 5. And therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you realize that God actually wants you to understand what his will is for your life? It's a very important concept, and sometimes people almost talk about the will of the Lord like it's some very horrifically mysterious thing. Like it's almost impossible to know what the will of the Lord is. Let me give you a little clue. It's right here. You have the ability to understand the will of the Lord by simply studying his word. This is his revealed truth to us. So anything that's in here that speaks to issues of life and godliness, the way that we need to conduct ourselves, this is his will. This part is not mysterious. And I might add that this speaks to a vast majority of life's circumstances and situations. And so when you think about knowing what God's will is, much of the time you need look no further than the Word of God. And where it speaks authoritatively to an issue, we simply do it. If it gives us a liberty, we need to question whether it's beneficial for the kingdom. And if it speaks negatively, then we need to not do it. It's not that hard. Amen? We need to see these things, folks. And and see, the church struggles with understanding God's will because they don't like what's being said. You know how kids are. They come, first they talk to dad, and well, dad, you know, mom said. And then they they try and weasel their way out of it, right, by going and getting another opinion. I know your kids don't do that. Mine did. Like Dad said, well, yeah, that's right. You, you see, when parents stick together and the same story is told from both, then they don't have any place to go. That's what God's Word does. It hymns us in. It says, look, this is what God said. He actually said it. We need to do it. It's not optional for us. And so where Scripture speaks, we can understand what the will of the Lord is. And then if you correctly apply it, you're going to find that there are very few questions that don't get answered by God's Word in your life. Very few. And so, now he goes on with how not to submit yourself. Because we're going to see the word in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. But he's really talking about the principle ahead of the actual statement. And so he says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And, negative example, do not be drunk with wine which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What's he saying? People look at that word dissipation and they go, oh man, I don't know what that means. Let me explain it to you. It's actually very simple. It's the same basic root word as dilution. So when you talk about dissipation, if you're going to be dissipated in any way, shape, or form, if you have a glass and you put in the bottom of that glass a little tiny bit of fruit juice and you keep dumping water into it, it is getting dissipated. And when you would have taken a swig of that fruit juice, initially it would have been all fruit juice. The more water you dump in, the more it's dissipated, and the less it tastes like fruit juice. Everybody get it? It's a simple process. 
Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to the dilution of your character in Christ. Hear what I said? Because you're going to be filled with something. When you get up in the morning, doesn't your head automatically start thinking stuff? Well, for most of you. Some of you, it's after eight. But most of you, when you get up, all of a sudden, the things that are inside, you begin to mull over and think about. You're you're filled with something. And the more Jesus you have in you, the more word of God you have in you, the more truth you have in you, the more of the outside world it takes to dissipate it. And the converse is also true. If you have no word in you, then it takes very little of the outside world to be dumped into your life before there's no Jesus left. That's why he says, don't be drunk with wine. You see, what it does is it adds world to your life. When I deal with children, and and for 20 years as a camp director, I can tell you, I've been asked every single question there is to ask about the consumption of alcohol. Well, if I have two beers, is that too many? If I have two and a half beers, is that, if I have a glass of wine with dinner and then follow it later with an aperitif, am I going to get drunk? Can I say to you that they're asking the wrong question? The question is, why would you want any alcohol in your system at all? That's the question. And here's why. Because anything that goes into your body or into your mind that dissipates Christ is not good for you. Anything. In any measure. So the same, well, I didn't really inhale. Well, you know, I only looked at a magazine. I didn't actually do that act. Do you see how it applies to every single thing in your life? You see, people are worried about how close they can get to sin. You need to be worried about how close you can get to Jesus. Amen? That's the issue. And so he begins with a negative example. Do not be drunk with wine, which is going to dissipate the amount of spirit that's in you, but be being filled. It actually says in the original language, but be being filled. In other words, it's a constant, continuous, ongoing process whereby the spirit is dumped into your life so that there isn't any room for the world to get in there. You are being filled with the spirit. Not filled with things that will dilute the spirit's work in your life. And people will often say to me, let me, let me just be blunt. I don't make a bunch of you mad right now. It's okay. This is how much alcohol Christians should consume. Zero. 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 Now, some of you that are going to a wine tasting this afternoon, you're mad at me, but I don't care. And let me tell you why. Because no amount of alcohol is physiologically good for you. It is a poison. So from a physiological standpoint, every time you consume a tiny bit of alcohol, medically it is a poison to your system, and your liver has to process it. So from a medical standpoint, it's not a good thing. Every time one of your friends sees you drink, 
Or every time you're in bonds and Pastor Jeff happens to be two people behind you, and I'm looking going, don't you go to Calvary Chapel South Bay, and then you look at the two cases of beer in your cart. (laughs) See, Pastor Jeff doesn't know whether you're drinking one of those cans one at a time for the next 10 years, or whether you're going to go home and consume all of them. You see, you have stumbled me. Now imagine that that person behind you barely knows the Lord, or worse yet, they don't know the Lord, and they see you doing that. So they automatically become emboldened to go do something that may very well take their life. So people make excuses for why they want to act like the world acts. People generally drink alcohol for one reason, and that is to get a buzz. That is the definition of drunkenness. Most people don't drink it because it just really tastes good. It may be a combination of something that is with their meal, and you you can make all the arguments you want. But the fact of the matter is, for us, your children are watching you. They're watching to see what mom and dad do. So when you put them to bed and they come down and you're sitting there with your glass, your kids are watching you. And when they see you do that, a couple of years later when they're in high school and you have not given them a clear understanding of why they shouldn't, they will. You don't want to be down at the morgue picking up your kid. You don't want to be down at the jail picking up your children. So let me give you a little secret. If this is how much you consume, if you have set this standard in your home, at least as far as it lies with you, you will have set the example that keeps your kids from going there. Strong, I know. But it's by conviction, because I've sat in the morgue with parents and wept with them. I have gone to the jail to bail out the son and the daughter. Be careful. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, you're going to be filled with one kind of spirit, either spirit or spirits choose the spirit of the living God. Okay, I'm done. You see, it always boils down to who's in charge. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we are saying Jesus Christ is master. Everybody understand that? That means he's the one who calls the shots and we listen to what he has to say. So if Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, by the way, That's where Jesus Christ received his lordship from, from God. His father, he said, I have not John 6. We're going to look at it towards the end of the study this morning. You you see, when he says that, what he's really saying is, is, look, there can only be one boss who's in charge. And that's why he says, look, don't be drunk with wine. Our concern is, is what or who? is going to be in control of our life. What's going to fill you? What's going to to come into your life? Will it dissipate the work of the Spirit? 
And it's pretty easy to see that drunkenness was a problem then. It's a problem now. And there's a really easy way to stay out of it. Just don't drink. Seriously. That is the easiest way. You'll never stand before a holy God and answer for your actions as to why you did it, led somebody else to do it, you did it and stumbled somebody else, or you did it and wrecked your own life. I'm pretty sure all those things get solved by the same thing. Just don't do it. Holy Spirit is in charge or the Holy Spirit is not in charge. You see, because ultimately, no matter what you're under the influence of, if it's not the Holy Spirit, it is a very poor substitute for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should be in charge of every Christian's life. And there is really a a right way, if you want to look at it that way, to be under the influence because we want to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit working in our lives in such a way that, that these things that might captivate us, might draw us into uh, the wrong place, to be there at the wrong time, are dealt with by the work of the Spirit in our lives. And you can see it in how this is phrased in verse 19. So it says, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to describe what that looks like. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things, and that says all things in the original language as well. That means everything, good, bad, and different. doesn't matter what kind of thing it is, all things. That comes from having so much Christ in you, so much Jesus in you, so much Word in you, so much of the work of God in your life that no matter what comes your way, you're ready for it. And it causes you to live your life this way. You start speaking Jesus. You start speaking Bible. You start acting and breathing. And and you've probably met those people. They're always humming worship songs. They're always talking. Every sentence has got a little bit of piece of Bible in it. Amen? You know, these are truths. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You walk around in those. That's the way you're supposed to live your life. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, when you start living that way, all of a sudden when those things come, you have something to battle with. You have the ability to say, look, I know who I am in Christ. And I'm not deluded with the things of the world. The things of God are so huge in my life that when the junk comes in, my Jesus pushes it out. That's the way it's supposed to be. Look at the results here. You see, we know what the world does. You're going to be drunk. You're going to be debauched. You're going to have a problem with divination, debased mind, destitution. Pick a D word. You're going to have some stuff going on in your life that's not going to be good if you're filled with the world. What you put in is what you get out. It's an old computer term. It's gigo. Garbage in, garbage out. Or good in, good out. doesn't matter which way, which way you want to take it. If you're so filled with the Spirit, what you get out of you is filled with the Spirit things. You ever noticed how lingering things from your past, I was talking this morning between services, you know, I'm old enough that I think back to the year, all those songs you listened to in high school, I'm going to totally mess with you. Now, some of you are so young that I probably couldn't relate to you, but for us older people here, I was a John Denver fan. I know, it's weird, but... The bottom line is, is as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, and I'm dri- we're driving down the road, and I'm looking at the Sierras, and I used to go backpacking when I was in, 
you know, in my teenage years, and we're driving down there, all of a sudden these John Denver songs are coming into my head. Me and my old lady sit and pass the pipe around. I don't think that's good. <laughs> then all of a sudden I realized what I had put in when I was 17 years old was now still there, still stuck in my head. What if that's a worship song? What if that's a praise song? The heavens, O oh God, declare your handiwork. The moon and the stars you have ordained. You see, it's a different thing. Then all of a sudden, that stuff, because you know what happens when you start thinking about high school. You could throw the football 100 yards. You were, you know, you were cut. You know, now it's like, not good, you know, and then you, oh man, that was just this great time, then you think about it, that was not a great time. (laughs) Got to put the Spirit in to get the Spirit out. We're light, we're supposed to live like light. And so to put this into perspective and to set the stage for what's going to come next, there's a singular word that I want to focus in on these next few minutes as we close. You see, during this day and time, and in this context, he says, look, be filled with the Spirit. That's a statement, by the way. Be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're filled filled with something else, it's not going to be good. Be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled. Because at that day and time, people lived a fairly carnal life. I would say in our day and time, many people live a fairly carnal life. They're seeking after the things of the world. And the world had crept into their life. He's saying, so the answer to the world creeping into your life is be being filled with the Spirit. And now he says something. It's a word that we just, man, in our culture, it has become so negative. When you use the word submit or submission or anything like it, it's like this instantaneous trigger goes on. And I will further say that churches throughout history have misused this particular concept and used it as a way to subjugate women that the Bible does not present. And so I want to take a couple of minutes because we're going to, the next couple of weeks, as we talk about the roles of husbands and we talk about the roles of wives, this is the basis. Notice what it says. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. That word there, submit or submission, is the Greek word hypotasso. And it means to come under authority in rank and in order. It means that God has selected a plan and a purpose, and he is very willful about it, and the way he structured things, he says, look, this is the way I'd like it to be, please do it my way. It has nothing to do with value, and it has nothing to do with what many in the world have made it out to be. Marriage is the first institution. It's the smallest component part of human society. And so it gets tested there first. And in case you haven't ever noticed, ultimately somebody kind of has to make the final decision. That's a necessary evil if you want to look at it that way. But what is not being taught in this passage and what is not taught in your Bible is the misogynistic male chauvinist view that no matter what a man says, every wife on earth needs to follow their husband right off the cliff of death. It's not taught in Scripture. 
It is not there. Furthermore, exactly the opposite was the function. Because women during that day and time were actually considered the property of their husband. And so the Apostle Paul is actually setting ladies free to be completely equal. And when he spoke to the church at Galatia, he actually said that. In verse 28 of chapter 3, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. So from God's perspective, husband and wife are in essence co-equal with different roles. Just as Jesus Christ is God, and yet under the submission of his Father. Turn to John chapter 6, if you will. I want you to see this principle because it's so important going forward with the remainder of what's said in this chapter. We all have to submit. Pick up in verse 35, John chapter 6, and Jesus said to them, the first thing he says is, I am the bread of life. He's saying I'm God. When he uses the Greek phrase, ego eme, I am, he's saying I am the uncaused cause of everything else. We read it as I am, like he's making a statement. Jesus was clearly referring to the I am of Moses, saying I am the uncaused cause. I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to clarify it and says that he who eats of me won't hunger and he who drinks of me won't thirst. So he's very clear about what he's saying. But I say to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He's talking about God. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down, notice this, from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Hippotasso. Jesus was God, and he submitted. He was never less than God, but he submitted. He will always be God incarnate. As far as we're concerned, he's the second person of the Trinity, but he's still fully God. All the majesty, all the glory, all the power, all the dominion, everything. So if Jesus himself submitted to God the Father, is submission a bad thing? The answer is no. Is submission a negative thing? No. Does submission diminish the person who submits? Not in any way, shape, or form. In fact, Jesus submitting to God the Father is still God. Fully God. It's an act of service. It's an act of will. It's understanding that God knows things we don't know. And so it's not negative. And this is the will of him who sent me. For all that has been given to me, I should lose nothing, and I should raise him up on the last day. That's a work that only God can do, by the way. And so when we think of the word submit or submission, you see you're going to be filled with something. The question is what? And if you're filled with the Spirit, then you have no time, no time to mess around with, with things of the world. And if you get rid of the things of the world, then you're going to fall in line with the will of God. And so you take your role very seriously, whatever that role is. 
And you'll be fulfilled in that role. So in the sense of the misuse of this, doesn't mean you become totally passive, doesn't mean you become voiceless, doesn't mean that you, you're, you pretend to be ignorant, it doesn't mean you gloss over the truth, it doesn't mean that there's an authoritarian domination by one over the other. As if, if I hear that you're sitting in your easy chair in your living room demanding your wife to go get your paper and your coffee and your slippers, I'll come beat you. She won't have to. In Jesus' name. The Bible does not teach that. It doesn't say that you women don't have amazing abilities. It does not say that you might even be brighter than your husband. Some of you probably are. Maybe all of you are. I don't know. That's not what's being said. God's established roles in marriage. He knows what they are. Our job is to try and find out what they are and then do it. Remember? Finding out what the will of the Lord is. And when you slide into that perfect role that God has for you, There's peace and unity and joy. Remember, there's one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God who is Father over all. Amen? So ultimately, I'm going to answer to God. My wife Connie will answer to God. My children will answer to God. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. We're all going to answer to Him. That's who I need to be concerned about. And if I'm concerned about him, then he will transform me. He'll change the thought process. He'll do what he needs to do. When my goal is to be well-pleasing to him, then he'll take all the other human relationships and make them exactly what they're supposed to be. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. As we do that, uh, I'll just leave you with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you don't need to turn to it, but you can look at it later. You're going to see this same word, submitting, putting under, And it's used in reference to Jesus seven times in in one chapter. If Jesus could submit to Father God and still be God, I don't think there's any trouble with us submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all of our human relationships. I think it's going to be just fine if we do it His way. Amen? Amen. It's our mission to fall in that rank under God's mighty hand, under his authority, by his power, his protection, his provision, and show people what it looks like to really sing and make merry in our hearts and sing spiritual songs and psalms unto the Lord. You see, when people see us doing that, it's all going to be good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this afternoon, and we pray, God, that you would just bless us. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to understand. Lord, we need to know what your perfect will is, what your good will, your intent is for our lives. And as we find those things out, that you'd give us joy in serving and loving. Lord, that you'd help us to know, uh, God, your glorious plans for each of us. Lord, we're so grateful that you haven't left us as orphans, but you've adopted us into your family. And Lord, that you love each one of us with an undying love. Pray that you would speak your truths into our lives this day. Pray as we now leave this building and head to our homes that we'd have that uh, wonderful view of heaven, Lord. It just causes us to enjoy every breath that we take, Lord, every step that we make. Would it, would it bear uh, fruit for your kingdom? 
We ask these things in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen and amen.